Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, product talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. This is Ryan Frederick with AWH, and I'm here with Nicole Doan from Duet Health. That's how you pronounce it, right? Duet? Yes. Yeah, okay. Duet yes. For some reason, I think that I've heard people pronounce it other ways. No, it's Duet, and we just go by Duet, actually. Most people just know us as that. Okay, sweet. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Nicole's career in product and, and how they approach product at, at Duet. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I'm learning already. And um, I was able to, you know, it could be trainable and drop the health, um, you know, within a matter of seconds. So that's good. So as you think about your journey so far from a career perspective, mm-hmm. how did you end up in product? And did you know that you this is where you would end up? And, and you're sort of in charge of, of product delivery now mm-hmm. at Duet, but you've had other roles yeah. around product. So is this a culmination of a lifelong goal to be involved in, in software products? Sure. Um, My journey started as a business analyst, and it's actually like way before my professional career kicked off. So I am the second generation in my family. My mother was a developer, and she was a developer who didn't like the right requirements, basically. (laughs) So she said, I have a teenager that can write. Like most, as it turns out, developers, right? So she's like, you know, you don't look like you're busy after school. You should write these requirements. And I'm like, what are requirements? And she like slowly pushed me kind of into that lane and said, hey... I don't know that you'll be interested in a technical career later on, but just in case, let me nudge you in this direction and see if there's some interest. There was no interest. So I went into the military and did the exact opposite, trying not to become my mother. And then I ended up becoming my mother. So that's basically what happened. So I started as a BA uh, right after college. And um, I can recall like my first day, I didn't actually know what a business analyst was supposed to do. I sometimes wonder if people still know what business analysts are supposed to do. It depends on where you are. Right? Yeah, it's kind of one of those roles it's a, that it's is a... Call it a BA if you don't have another title for it, right? Right, because at some places, BAs are doing requirements. Some, right. some places, they're doing user stories and exactly. job stories. Sometimes, in some places, they're doing user research and validation. Exactly. Right? Sometimes, they're doing market research. What is a business analyst to you? But fortunately, I got my start in a small company. So um, that was local. Uh, I was with Optimum Technology, Josh Dobda, and he pretty much threw everything at me. He's like, you're going to learn how to write RFP. You're going to learn how to write requirements. You're going to sit with the technical teams. You're going to do all these things. And I think because I was started off with a small company and I was able to pivot in and out of multiple roles seamlessly, that kind of started my journey into the product world because then I started evaluating his products and said, well, does it make sense for it to do this? And I didn't recognize that that was what I was doing at the time. I was just being honest and like evaluating his actual products. And he appreciated the engagement. He said, oh, I never considered that. And when we responded to RFPs, I would say, hey, is that really what we mean here or should we say this? And I didn't realize that I was trying to pivot the message for the market, right? I didn't realize that I was already participating in those things. I just did it organically with his nudge but he was very much it was a waterfall environment so the product role wasn't a formal role right it was still very waterfall and so um the ba in that role kind of has multiple you know you wear multiple hats and he as the ceo directed the vision of where the product was going but none of those things because the term agile terms hadn't really pushed into that lane yet none of those things were really relevant to what we were doing at the time so we thought so i was just kind of walking the walk without knowing that that's what I was actually doing. That's Um, the best part, though, because 
to product is now this this it's sort of the new agile right right mm-hmm. where now it, it's there are product consultants and there there are you know lots of of there's lots of conversation around product management and product ownership and product mm-hmm. ownership is part of agile etc but it feels like this new sort of savior that agile mm-hmm. you know what what you know became to be and the reality is We've been doing product management the whole time forever, <laughs> right? We just didn't we just didn't label it. We mm-hmm. just didn't we just called it. Hey, let's make our product better. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure it solves a problem that people care about. That's when it's always the best. Is when it's just organic and you're just doing it because you're trying to build the best product that mm-hmm. satisfies a problem for customers versus trying to fit within some narrative of this is how we should be doing it. Exactly, and I think that. As a result, picking up so many unique roles, starting in uh, this kind of nuanced title, I was able to seamlessly pick up on so many different roles at the same time that at one point I said, hey, I'm noticing a gap in the organization, right? Why don't we do this? And then I didn't realize that was also a whole, that was a job, right? I didn't know that was release management. I just said, hey, I think we should be monitoring how we're releasing things. That sounds like a problem, right? So let me raise my hand and say, maybe we should be doing that. Considering we just screwed up the last three releases, (laughs) maybe we ought to put some management in place over that. I don't know, but it might be a good idea to do this, right? So that's really how I kind of came into the role that I am now, which I still wear multiple hats, by the way. Do you think? that would it behoove others Mm -hmm. to also start out in smaller environments where they can learn multiple roles, you know, and and understand how each of the roles works together, collaborates, and what the interdependency Mm -hmm. of the roles is, right, as part of creating, deploying, and supporting a product? Absolutely. I actually um, suggest that. So it's interesting when I'm You know, in my role, I have uh, team members that are in product and I have project managers and QA. And then I also, you know, am kind of softly like over the development team, but then they have their own manager. But we work together because we have to co-manage them in order to make this thing work. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's interesting that you say that because we've actually experienced that just at Duet. Right. Where we've taken people and we say, hey, we know we hired this person for this, but they have a really, really interesting talent that I think they should be exposed to here. So we may want to pivot some people around to see how they're going to work and to understand all of these different roles because you get an appreciation for it. Right. So I've had people who they don't understand what a requirement is. So, okay, let's write some requirements. And then they start. I start to notice like, hey, this person has a very unique skill set to call out my requirements when they're in QA you might just be a QA engineer. You didn't realize it when you were testing, right? But you saw some of the gaps. You saw both the positive and negative aspects of what you needed to test. So you might actually have a gift that we should probably take advantage of, that we should probably push you in that career path, right? And how open are people to that typically, where you're sort of identifying hey, it looks like you actually are good at this, Mm -hmm. and this might actually be better aligned with your skills than where we've got you currently slotted. Are people, in your experience, typically pretty open to that? Because they want to be successful, right? So it's not that they're doing a bad job of what they're doing, but if we see someone with a very unique talent, like we have a guy who um, was in in project management, 
And I promise you, like his the level of detail that he would pay attention to some of our designs, I'm like, hmm, you might be a product manager and you just didn't know it. Mm -hmm. So he's, you know, being coached now in that product owner role where it's like, hey, first you need to understand how to write a user story and understand that perspective. And then you need to dig into the details of some of the gaps that exist and so on and so forth. How does our platform work? What would you suggest about our platform? And now that he he's actively cooperating in the vision of what we're doing, he doesn't even know it half the time. But that's what, you know, he knows he's in this role, but he doesn't understand the journey that he's taking right now. And he won't until he's at the end of it. Right? right. And that's sort of the beauty of it, because you're organically producing people, you're organically molding people into these roles because it's what they're gifted at. And that's, I think, where the industry is kind of lacking, where we say, OK, you will hire you into this role. But how do we know that that person is actually good at that role until they actually get in? How do you know that they're going to understand the audience? How do you know they're going to understand what the vision is of the platform? Like, well, how do you know? You don't know that during the interview, right? You could say someone had a title the entire time, but have they actually dug their hands into a product and dug their hands into the users and kind of gotten to the psyche of where it's going and what users are saying and articulated that through the product? It's, that's, that's really difficult to do, and that's why titles are so dangerous, I think. You need to be looking for the personality and not necessarily the personnel, if that makes sense. Yeah. How do you think about the differences between some of the roles? like product owner and product manager, if you look at them differently at all? I do look at them differently, but with a caveat, right? So when I think of a product manager, I'm thinking of a person who owns a product roadmap. Like, where are we going, right? Like, what are, what's the intention of what we're doing? When I think of a product owner, I'm thinking of someone who's going to dig into the detail on what we're building. And I think of that person as a person who's, you're writing the user stories, you know, someone gives you an idea of what the strategy is, what we're trying to produce, and this is where we want to be in 12 months. And then a product owner is kind of digging into, okay, I understand that, but how does it fit into our platform? I do think that a person who is not or has not been a product owner should not be a product manager, because you have to understand that role before you can grow into the other, Right. How can you tell someone a direction of a platform or of your product if you don't know how it works to begin with? So I think that it's possible to develop a product owner and then, you know, gradually turn them into a product manager. And then hopefully that's your director of product or whatever they become. Right. But I don't think that you could just have someone come in as a product manager who knows nothing about what's going on. They need to be have, there needs to be some intimacy with what that line of code is doing or what any product is doing. Right. You need to understand, like, how much code has been committed. How does the request that you make contradict with all the other things that we've built? And then how is that the direction the product's taking? Or is this just a one off that's going to impact all the other things we've built from there. All of those things need to be considered. And those roles are, are dependent on each other with, you know, the product manager being more dependent on a product owner. Yeah. Do you think, so it sounds like you think that product owners and product managers should have some level of technical, at least awareness, mm -hmm. if not aptitude, to understand how the product is architected, what the sort of tech stack is. Mm -hmm maybe even down to oh here's here's this you know module and and you know this layer of the product mm -hmm. and here's why it's written the way it is and here's why we approached it the way that we did yes uh, etc so yes and no i think that there needs to be a comfortable understanding of technology right especially in our space right you need to understand what a mobile app is capable of doing before you can say this is what the mobile app is going to do so because we build mobile apps i do think that to an extent a person who's coming in in that role should be comfortable with mobile technologies to begin with otherwise you're automatically starting out from a place where you may not be able to lend you know you might not have the lens not only of because the user experience is one thing 
But the limitations of what the platform can or cannot do is another. Right. And what we don't want is for someone to come up with it, you know, a design. It's like, hey, just so you know, that's not supported by <laughs> the mobile platform. Right. So. Apple will actually not allow you to do that. Yeah. It's like, that's not a thing. So, right. but, but thank you for trying. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you've got three products, mm -hmm. um, three core products mm -hmm. that do it, right? Yes. Do you approach all of those three products and do you manage them mm -hmm. in, in essentially the same way and use the same approach? Or do you manage each of those different because they're serving different user groups and constituencies? Both, actually. So okay. the technical development of them are managed the same, right? How we build and the approach we take technically is exactly the same. Okay. How they are managed from a product perspective are completely different because they have completely different audiences. One segment, so our population health, is for um, ACOs, accountable care organizations, larger hospital systems, and insurance. And then we have our patient platform that's literally for our patients and our professional for our physicians. And because they're all looking for something different, we don't have a choice but the segment those experiences to an extent when they come together that's where we're uniquely in a position to pivot our products to serve all of those at the same time so we it's not uncommon for a hospital to have almost all of our products because there is some interoperability between them that kind of allows someone in the c-suite to see it from a full perspective and say, okay, well, this is what our patients are saying. And this is the engagement that we have with our patients. How should our physicians be engaging with those patients? How should we engage insurance companies with all those things? Sometimes they overlap, but sometimes they don't. And because we have so many widgets, which are, in, you know, a lot of people believe are modules. In our world, we call them widgets. Mm -hmm. Our patient platform has over 25 widgets at this point. Our professional has about 19. And the ACO platform is a whole totally different beast of its own. It's not even widgets. It's just a monster of a platform. Because there's so many things, we have to approach product from an organic perspective to say this is the user experience from this audience but then we also have to leverage that internally and say okay well how does that overlap and like what are we missing and what can we build based off of what we're hearing and that's where we've been very successful so a customer could implement each of the products they could implement just one of the products mm -hmm. and but there's more value for them it sounds like mm -hmm. if they implement all of them because of that cross-population mm -hmm. of data and information that is going to make each of those constituencies and those user groups smarter and better because they now have data flowing across that entire product spectrum exactly. versus it being siloed and at some point coming to a dead end where now you don't have visibility into the physician piece as a patient because mm -hmm. you ultimately get to a dead end where the data just doesn't go any further. Exactly. And if you have a hospital, for example, if they have a patient platform and they're engaging any of their patients, and sometimes those vary, by the way. We have a hospital that's local and they have cardiological patients and then they also have um, pregnancy patients, right? Completely different segments of populations. When they log into the application, they see completely different things. But it also helps them internally from a physician's group to say, okay, what do our patients actually need? And as a result, they're kind of driving those results and driving people into their hospital, right? It's like, hey, I cannot begin to tell you how we've seen success with some of these platforms. Uh, one of them, Taver with Mount Carmel, has been profoundly and profoundly impactful with helping prevent readmissions where a patient's released from the hospital after having a major heart surgery and just engagement from a journal entry to say, Hey, I feel a little weird or, Hey, I've noticed my salts, you know, a little high today. I'm not feeling the greatest. That triggers a response from their nursing, their nursing staff. They can contact that patient at the drop of a dime and say, Hey, we noticed you responded this way. Is there something wrong? Is there something ongoing? Can you tell us more about that? 
maybe you should come back in and see us right now, right? That's profoundly impactful for the physicians because they don't have abnormal readmissions from patients who are at high risk, right? Simultaneously, the patients feel like someone's engaging with them. It's like, hey, someone actually took the time. Like, I, you know, I just had this major heart surgery. I didn't even know this was abnormal because you get, you know, notes from, you know, when you're released from the hospital. Hey, if these things happen, but who actually reads them, right? That's being honest. Like, no one actually reads when, you know, their discharge paperwork. They just kind of go home and put it on a counter somewhere and it's there and they fill their prescription and they go on about their life. This is helping to prevent an actual outcome. And that's what we're, that's what Duet is driven to do. We are driven to actually impact patients, impact physicians on how they operate and really change healthcare and say, okay, how can we help the two engage so that we are making an impact in healthcare? So why have you guys had the level of success and sort of patient care impact that you've, you've had? Healthcare is a notable, difficult industry uh, because of lots of fragmentation, which is is both the opportunity and the challenge for most companies and most products, mm-hmm. right? Because th- the data is so siloed, there are lots of protectors of data, obviously regulation, HIPAA, all those kinds of things. Why do you think that you guys have been able to have the level of success you've had and have the impact with the products that you have to this point? We listen. To be honest with you, I think that's the main purpose of product to begin with, right? We do listen. We're not afraid to take a risk. That's the main thing. Sometimes we have a client and they'll come to us and they'll say, hey, we really want to do this. And we're like, no, that's probably not a good idea. And these are 20,000 reasons why. Not because we don't want to take your money, because we absolutely do, but because we also want you to have a successful program. And because we rate our success when they're success. So we listen, but we also lead. And we're not afraid of that. And a lot of that leadership is risk, right? Because you don't know what you don't know. But you're willing to put yourself out there and say, but you know what, I bet if we did this, it would be successful. So we take the lead on a lot of products. We say, hey, I don't see anything else in the market that's doing this. We should probably do this. And because we are willing to take that risk and because we're willing to engage, you know, with several of our clients and say, hey, we would like to take a risk. Would you like to take it with us? We're going to build it. We're going to take the internal risk. We just want you to use it. We want you to see how it works out. That's where we've been the most successful. And I think that's where we will continue to be the most successful, to be honest with you. Yeah. And that's where a lot of companies really struggle. And a lot of people building products struggle is how do you marry your own vision and roadmap for the product mm-hmm. with that of users and, and customers? Because mm-hmm. they're giving feedback, right? And, and if you're getting and staying close to customers and users, and that is, from my perspective, the one thing that if you don't build a successful, valuable product, it's probably because you didn't get and stay close to your customers or your users. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know a principle that, that I see a lot of people violate, and it sounds like that you guys hold that, that near and dear, which is awesome. But how do you marry that feedback with your own vision for the product and, and where you want to take it from a business perspective, because mm-hmm. ultimately you still need to monetize and make money, et cetera, And at the same time, do that solving customer problems and adding value. So just like we're willing to take risk, we are also willing to say no. And we we are evangelists to our own product. And we do truly believe in what we're doing. So if there's ever a contradiction in where someone else requests goes and where we want to be, I think one of the greatest things our CEO, Jeff Harper, is really, really good at simply saying no. He'll say, hey, I think it's a great idea. 
is something we may consider later on, but this is the direction we're going in. And unfortunately, that may contradict where you're going. And so unfortunately, that may contradict where Duet is at this time. And I think being him being comfortable with doing that, and I think us uh, as a company all kind of universally saying, hey, this is what the platform does. And that is a contradiction to what we're trying to build. And us being comfortable enough to do that is, has been probably the one the most important. And it keeps all of our teams involved um, and engaged, including our engineering team. They don't just build products. They don't just go back and code. They actively participate and critique our design. <laughs> Trust me, they critique our design. <laughs> they actively... <laughs> And they, they come and they critique where product wants to go. Sounds now. like one of these critiques might have happened recently. Yes, it did. It might be a little sensitive right now, but <laughs> yes. But they will. They will come back and say, hey, I get what you're trying to do there. That's not the answer to this. And I think the answer may be X, Y, Z. And sometimes they win and sometimes they lose. But as a company, we are all willing to bring people into a team. We have the lead from Android and the lead from iOS and the lead from web because we're building APIs to go along and all this stuff. We're all sitting in a room and we're all evaluating the thing together and we're saying, hey, what do we think of X? And for the most part, Jeff is always the final say, but if he feels for whatever reason the development team has any you know, resignation or if you know I or my team, we have any resignation, then we will absolutely evaluate it until we all come to some form of consensus and I do appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jeff did a thing. I do something called Startup Grind where mm -hmm. I interview entrepreneurs and investors. Mm -hmm. The entrepreneur ones are much better than the investor ones, mm -hmm. by the way, because <laughs> investors all say the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so Jeff did one with me as part of Startup Week, mm -hmm. not 2018, but I think 2017. Okay. So it was it was it was an interesting conversation, and I, the funniest thing, and I'm going to start laughing about it because it was it was hilarious. He went to see an investor somewhere in Massachusetts, I mm -hmm. think in the Boston area, mm -hmm. and it was a guy, and the guy like invited him down to his basement and w w was just in his underwear or something. <laughs> Sounds and, about right. Right, and it was just, and, I, and Jeff's telling this story, and I'm, and I'm just aghast. I'm like, you totally have to be making this up. You're totally punking us right now. And he was like, no, this is a, this is a true story about the weirdest encounter I had with an investor. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it, that was, it was one of the best startup grinds that I've done because mm -hmm. Jeff is very direct, very yes, transpa transparent, um, which is refreshing. And I'm sure it's, it's good to be part of a team mm -hmm. that has that as one of its cultural um, sort of pillars, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and would you say, well, I'm not going to assume that. Is that one of your cultural pillars at Duet? Absolutely. Is, is, let's let's <laughs> just say are, it for He what and it I is. are infamous. Yes, he and I are infamous for it. We don't, there's no fluff, right? Like we don't, we don't have the time for it because we're constantly, constantly building. And I think that's one of the things that, to be honest with you, I think that's why we see so many of our clients, like they come into our office quite a bit because it's refreshing because we are just telling it like it is. You come into the office and we're like, hey, that looks like a great idea on paper. Maybe not, right? Or it's, hey, that's a great idea. How can we help you build on that idea? What can we help build it? And Those shoes you're wearing today are just not doing it for you. <laughs> right. You should leave right I don't, now. I don't think we really care about that part. No, you don't. <laughs> no. Oh, I would. No, I would. if you come into Duet, we, some people come in pajamas, so I don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is truly a come as you are environment yes right? it, it absolutely is and i mean i think that's the best part i mean it's one of the best things and one of the most interesting things i think about working alongside um 
alongside Jeff, we have uh, three of us that he would say are the more direct personalities. <laughs> and then other people are a little softer. And so at first, it's like we do balance each other well because, you know, some people have softer messaging and we're like, that's wrong. <laughs> we're we're we might have about three words to say like that's wrong and that's not gonna work <laughs> i heard what you said and you're wrong yes uh, that's pretty much how we operate and i think because of that and because we're open to giving very blunt feedback we've kind of created a culture at duet where i mean people really do learn quite a bit from each other because we're okay with not only getting like giving criticism but also taking criticism and it builds us up like i've had plenty of people say i don't think i like the way you built that jira board and i'm like oh okay and i could say well you can't build it so i don't know what to tell you but also tell me more about that what do you need what do we need to be more productive and as a result like our productivity is yeah insane. Why, do you, why do you think it doesn't work Right. Exactly. And uh, as a result, like we've made changes even to how we operate with Jira that's like substantially increased our productivity, to be honest with you. So that's a great segue into because I, I don't I don't like it when companies spend too much time sort of talking about systems and tools. Mm-hmm. We think it, I think it can become a crutch mm-hmm. where they spend so much time sort of getting their infrastructure in place mm-hmm. that they become really good infrastructure experts around tools and systems. And then they lose sight of, of the true purpose of product. Why it was created. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, but you guys are, are, you know, nailing, you know, the product stuff and you have, you know, you're very centered there. So from a tool and system perspective, what are you doing that allows you guys to be highly efficient and highly productive? Sure. So from a day-to-day productivity, we are Jira evangelist. Um, I will say that loosely because, so I've been in Agile for years. I don't live in a world where process should get in the way of productivity. And I say that because I'm also like the company's process engineer. I build all those boards out. I customize Jira for what we need because that's what we need at the time. I don't let that get in the way of us actually getting work done. So um, we really do pick and choose what we want from Agile, basically. We, we pick what we want and we leave the rest because that's what works for Duet Health. And it can be very intimidating, I think, for someone who comes in to Duet because we move so quickly. We can build a widget in two weeks and that blows people's minds. And I'm talking about like built and tested. That's also because we have a platform and templates created for it, specifically for that process, but we have our process nailed. So what parts of Agile are you mostly using and which parts are are you mostly not using? So we aren't so ceremonial, basically, right? Like we don't, it's great. Like we go through some estimations, right? We're like, okay, great. But you really don't know until you get into the weeds of what the data is doing. So thanks for the estimate, but we'll see, right? So you're not into um, points and, and... We do points loosely. It's okay. like, okay, that's great. That's that's fine. Okay. The reality of it is we have clients that have deadlines. So you can tell me however many points. If you tell me it's three points, that's great. Also, <laughs> this is due like by this date. Right. So just so you know. <laughs> two, two Thursdays from now, it still has to be there. Correct. So I was so. like, so that's great. So really the question is, what do we need to do to actually meet that deadline, right? So that's the world we operate at. Where some of it is still waterfall-ish because we have clients that operate in the world where they paid us and they're like hey this is where we need this thing by right well the reality is and this is this is why i'm not i'm not a, a agile evangelist mm-hmm. using your your jira evangelist term because most anybody is actually using bastardized agile yes right because 
in the truest sense, you would have a four or five person team, right, of a designer and a developer and a deployment person exactly. and a product person, right? And they would just run unfettered with no... No, no guidelines. No schedule, no requirements, no, no budget. No deadline. Right. <laughs> Let's just keep wrenching on this thing yes. until we think we get it to a point that we're happy with. Yes. It's like, that is not practical. Real, and it's not the real world, and right? It's not like, not world. when you actually have bills to pay. If you don't, then by all means, have fun spinning on, on that hamster wheel. But in the real world, we have something to produce that we need to deliver. Right. Exactly. By some point in time, with some, probably within some financial constraint budget, right, mm -hmm. within that period of time. So it, it's just funny to me when people sort of espouse, well, you know, Agile, okay, if you actually break it down, you're doing some combination of waterfall and agile, exactly. and you're doing this hybrid, which is we still have to understand to some degree what we're building mm -hmm. about how long it's going to take yes. and about how much it's going to cost. Right. Right. It's like, okay, so once we go through this process and it hits QA, what are we actually looking at? Right. And I think to that extent, that's when agile's worked for us when we've relied on it right we need to make sure our user stories are lined up and we understand what the requirements are so we can kick it over to qa so qa can make their test plan based off what those requirements are and that's where teams work very efficiently together we also need, know we need to split apart and you need to do your role and i need to do my role and it's like yes we're a team but we also have individual roles and we're accountable for them right and that i think is also where duet's been very successful we really do believe in accountability we don't treat people like they're you know need to be babysat you're a grown, <laughs> you're an adult in this role. We're relying on you because this is a relay, right? I'm going to be ready with my hand out, ready to catch that baton when you come to me. So you do what you need to do and run the best leg of your race you've ever run before. And then I'm going to be there to catch that baton and do the exact same thing I just asked you to do. And I think because of that and because we all equally work at that level and because we all treat each other like we're accountable adults, I think that's honestly why we're so successful. And we use Agile for what it's for. We use Jira literally as a communication board. We have stand-ups every single day like clockwork. We also have breakout session stand-ups depending on how quickly the product needs to be built or how whatever issues we're trying to solve at that time, right? We have all of our planning meetings, but they're not as long as some of the planning meetings. Like I've been a part of some from other projects that we've worked on when we've been embedded with other companies. I was in one that was four hours one time. And I remember distinctly having a conversation with Jeff and said, that is unacceptable. Like We will never sit in another four hour meeting again. Everything they asked me, they could have just sent it over to me. I could have done the same thing they did literally in 30, 45 minutes. And it just would have saved a lot of time. We could have talked about the thing that I did. If you want feedback, let's give it then and let's just hit the ground running. But I think that's also, like I said, where we are successful. We hit the ground running. We take a look at what you're asking for. We may be reading while we're running. but We understand the request, but we also need to build something. And yeah, and I think that's that's why we are so efficient. And I, we, we built quality products because we understand who we're delivering for. We understand what the task is. But then we also have things set up to ensure that we're successful at doing that. So let's connect the dots on how your teams are structured. Mm -hmm. So um, sort of walk through architecture and sort of the understanding of requirements mm -hmm. and, and roles through you know, deployment. Yeah. Um, what does that team sort of makeup look like? So it depends on what the task is, really. Um, we have some that require Android and iOS developers. We have some clients that only want an iOS build, for example, because it's all they want to build right now. They only want to build iOS. But we typically have at least a web, an Android, and iOS developer one task. If okay. it's larger, we may have two, right? We have QA always assigned and attached to the team. 
they need to know from beginning to end. We have the product owner slash BA, because we still use that word because it matters, right? Mm -hmm. Who's kind of coming in, they understand the market, they understand the client's request, and they're going to write the requirements. We have the overarching product manager that could be anywhere between Jeff or myself. Um, we also have another product manager that'll come in. It just depends on who's speaking for the vision of that product at that time. Yep. Um, and then collectively, we kind of work together like as a hybrid team. Sometimes people break off. Sometimes people come back, depending on where their roles need it. Um, but we're constantly engaged to the product. And we're actually in one of those one of those projects right now where it's like, hey, we have about a three-week delivery cycle. So we call ourselves the SWAT team. We bring the SWAT team in. SWAT team <laughs> comes in. And we pick and choose people based on their velocity, based on uh, how complex the project is. And we have some people who are architecturally minded to begin with. So if it's particularly complex, we actually have developers that excel at that, right? So we pivot people in and out. Um, we have some that are kind of high level, kind of visual. We have developers that excel at that. So depending on what the project is, the level of complexity, so on and so forth, we kind of handpick our teams, like as a SWAT team. And that's literally what we call ourselves constantly. It's like, okay, if you have to handpick who's going to be on your roster, who's it going to be? And some of us constantly work together because we are constantly put on the same types of projects together because we work and we have a synergy. And then sometimes we pivot off and we're with another team, but you know, we do what we need to do. And then sometimes we don't need all of those roles. Sometimes we just have one person ahead of architecture. We do have a lead architects and we only need him to make all of these decisions because it already exists on our platform. Right. And we could just divvy the work out to the developers because it's going to do what it's always done because, you know, we have standards. Right. Who do you seek advice from and, and where do you get insights? How do you get better? Sure. So I have a, I actually have a couple mentors um, and they specialize in different things. So uh, Russell Shepard, he's actually out in Scotland, uh, UK. I worked for him uh, as his product manager and he was pretty impactful for me specifically because first of all, he's Scottish. So he's really blunt. So that worked for me. <laughs> So that, was, that, that really works. So that was good. Yeah. That was a good fit. Yes. Right. He, that was, it was, he and I were a great match to begin with. Second of all, because he's so blunt and so direct, he is not afraid to tell me exactly what he thinks of anything that I'm doing. He's like, hey, that's probably a bad idea and you should probably pivot left from there and not do that again. But he is, he is so big on understanding where industries are going. And he's constantly feeding me information. He's like, have you read this? Have you read that? So on and so forth. So he's been pretty profound. And that's his specialization has always been to, he built a product. And um, then he sells it in about eight or 10 years or so. And he's made himself quite wealthy off of doing that. And he's like, hey, this is what my bread and butter's been. I am telling you the tricks of the trade, the things that I've done, just in case you ever, if you ever want to do something like that. And I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. I have some that are process-related mentors that are quite interesting. We are constantly engaging in how to uh, grow a team and how to develop talent. And that's been an interesting transition because historically I was always a manager of things. I was always a manager of all the tasks in a company, right? Where everything is at one time. Like to this day, that still is one of my specialties. I know where all changes are. I do all the version control. I know the full history of when we did this and when we released this change and so on and so forth because I have a memory to do so and because I'm really good at documentation and so on and so forth. But they've helped me uh, build better teams and really seek the best in the talent that I'm developing. And um, I had one in particular, I haven't spoken to her in quite some time, but her name's Linda Karova. And she was the first female 
uh, manager I had ever had in IT. And that was really profound because um, she always told me that you should be less concerned with your weaknesses and build on your strengths. And so I think that's a part of the reasons why at Duet we're not afraid to say, hey, I know we hired you for this, <laughs> but as it turns out, I think you might be better at this. And because we're constantly drawing those strengths from people and we're molding them and building them, I honestly think she's responsible for molding and building me into who I am, to be honest with you. Um, she had a really profound impact in my life. So. That's a terrific segue in, into talking about being a female mm -hmm. and an African-American female mm -hmm. in tech. Mm -hmm. um, and we met through IC Stars, mm -hmm. which is a workforce development program for underemployed adults that... Um, I help uh, launch in Columbus. And so thank you for your engagement and, and support of the program and, and the people in it. Uh, it matters more than you'll ever know and probably more than they'll ever be comfortable admitting and saying. Mm -hmm. But what's your experience been like in tech as, as an African-American female? Good, bad, indifferent? So I will tell you, I will start this with a story okay. and then it'll kind of give you my first introduction. So outside of, it didn't happen. I didn't, I didn't, I'm not but going to. But you're kind to, of a, but you went into the, you went into the military. So you're, yeah. you know, you're kind of a badass. So yeah. It, it, people yeah. are probably, you know, if, well, if they know it, they may not mess around with you to the level that they might with somebody else. I and don't I, know if that's I true think or that's not. one of it. And I, then I also have a very kind of forceful personality. Like, I'm not shy and I'm not afraid to tell somebody, like, okay, settle down now, relax. <laughs> but so I was out in San Francisco. It was my first day. I worked for a company named One Login. Uh, and it's off of the Embarcadero area, off of Spear Street. I don't know if you've been to San Francisco, but gorgeous location. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, oh goodness. goodness. Yeah, it's gorgeous, right? Yeah. So I turn around, I go to work for the first day, and I was probably overdressed, to be honest with you, to work in Silicon Valley. I will admit that. But I'm like, no, I'm here. Did I'm you gonna... have like a Hillary Clinton jumpsuit on? No, it wasn't yeah. that bad, but okay. it might have been slightly overdressed. Pantsuit. Right? I don't know why I said jumpsuit. <laughs> not, not really a pantsuit. I, I don't know. I think I had on a dress at the time, but still in all, it was probably, I definitely... I'm going to assume I had on a blazer or something you like that. Were you were showing that you were the newbie. Correct. Okay. I absolutely look like I was the newbie. I look like I should have gotten off at Market instead of near Barcadero and should have been working in the banking district for sure. But right. um, So I, I get there and there's receptionist at the desk and there's security guard at the desk and security guard says to me, oh, the manager's not here to interview for like another hour. And I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm not here to interview for security. I am here to go to work and I don't remember the floor, which is why I came up to you, but good to know it. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. And P.S., the woman who said that to me was an African-American woman, right? And I remember having a conversation with her. Like I said something to her probably like two days later because it was really bothering me. And I'm like, hey, I just wanted to let you know I didn't appreciate that. And she was like, to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever seen like a black manager go up there before. I'm not even going to lie to you, like male or female. So it really did surprise me to find out that you are a manager going up there. Like I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a black developer go up there before. And I'm like what did I move here for? <laughs> like, that was that moment where I was like, oh God, <laughs> like, did I make a mistake? <laughs> I've landed in the land of Oz. Yeah, so I was right. like, uh, okay. And it's funny because from that experience, I constantly noticed during my commute, like, man, there is, there really isn't any other African-Americans on this muni at all. I'm just all by myself. And it made me want to volunteer 
because I remember my mother saying to me, um, you know, my, my mom was a developer and she eventually ended up becoming a manager, but she told me one day she never had a female manager ever in IT. And then I said, well, have you ever had a black manager? And she said, no. She was like, I was all alone on an island. And I said to her, huh? But I never, my mom, you know, she was raised a different time. and She didn't make a big deal out of it. No, but I do, right? <laughs> so <laughs> we're not the same person. And as much as she mentored me, I'm like, oh, I'm definitely not going to hold this information to myself because what I don't want to do, I don't want to get to an age of retirement in the many years, by the way, that I'm off from that many, many years, just so we're on the same page. But... <laughs> But I don't want many, to, many, 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 many years, but I don't want to get to a point where I'm retired and I look back and I don't want uh, my son or my stepdaughter who both may be interested in technology to say to me, I've never had a black female director or manager that really did bother me. And I mean, as a result, I think that it's made me um, consciously aware of the fact that we definitely do need more minorities and more women in technology because we lend voice and vision to products like we all know about that hp debacle when they <laughs> released their webcam and it didn't recognize black faces like we don't need things like that right like it's like hey you might want to have a black tester like just so <laughs> if you're going to make things that are supposed to recognize people maybe you should recognize all people but yeah i think that as a result it's made me very socially aware it's made me a very conscious of my role to that and that's why i dedicate so much time to volunteering I actually just, I have some City of Columbus kids actually in the office now at Duet. Um, they've been there for a couple weeks now, coming in, kind of learning about our product. And I, I work with Archie Williamson on that yeah. to kind of get them in. He's like, hey, let's let's get some kids in there. And I'm like, yeah, this is absolutely what we should be doing because it's very interesting. Like they came in, I don't think they knew what to expect. And I'm like, I am not I'm very atypical, to say the least. Like, I come in, and I have a lot like a t-shirt, and I have tattoos and everything showing. And I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, hey, what's up? They're like, hey. We, we thought we were going to a professional work yeah. environment. Yeah, <laughs> it's like people are in shorts and pajamas, and they're like, hey. And I'm like, hey, you're overdressed, by the way. Also, welcome to what I was <laughs> also overdressed on my first day, Correct. by the way. It's okay. Don't do it again. Right. right? But I think it is allows them to give them an experience to say, oh, okay, this is what, you know, this is what it looks like in a company. And it's very, it's a, almost a surreal experience for them. Like they come in, like the first day they came in, I was like running stand up and I'm asking all these people questions and so on and so forth. And they were like, oh, and I'm like, so I, I manage all this. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, and you can too. And then sort of introducing them to other roles outside of development that they didn't even consider before. Like they knew nothing about a product manager or, you know, all the different types of roles it takes to create a company, right? All the different career tracks. There are release managers, release engineers, and so on and so forth. They're like, what is that? I'm like, well, let me introduce you. And kind of getting their feet wet to say that you can take 20,000 paths in IT, right? Or you could take them all, which is my approach. I'm like, take a, do as many jobs as you humanly can so you can be great at all of them, and then someday you manage the whole thing. But I want to believe that, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, I have a 16-year-old and a 15-year-old, right? Uh, my son's 16, my stepdaughter's 15. I want to believe that by the time they get into the workforce, they will be in a position where if I see kids like, you know, that better here today, 
they will have the mindset where they too can be managers and they too can be directors and they'll look to be VPs and they'll look to have their vision and their voice heard in a product that are being built and they'll be bold enough to make those decisions because if it really doesn't start with the generation of who are we're in now it it won't right well, at, it, at a minimum it will skip a generation correct right uh, and, and maximum it probably skips three or four and or some number the impact of that economically is disastrous for oh. minority communities at this point. Like if we don't step up and we don't really start to really engage the technical world and have, you know, build products that not only are for our audiences, but they're also for us, right? Like it's like, hey, where's your vision and your voice in this conversation? How does this product impact you? Or what could you be building for your own community? How can you not be less of a consumer of a product and more of a builder of that product? I think that that's the path forward and being involved in that and being engaged in it now means a lot to me. So, yeah. and I'm going to continue to be. Yeah. Sandy Castro, the, the founder and president of IC Stars in Chicago, which we, we um, used as a springboard to launch in Columbus. Mm-hmm. She says that it's about taking people from being consumers to being creators. Yes. Right. And, and, and I think that's a very succinct way of putting it because if you're a consumer, then th- there's no there's no monetization path as mm-hmm. part of that, right? You're mm-hmm. using Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and Gmail just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. If you're a creator, now you've got an opportunity to monetize something that you've produced that the world is now going to consume, exactly. right? Whether you're a software person, right, mm-hmm. a developer and a product person, or you're a sculptor or a painter, right. creating something is a path to value and monetization ultimately and, and ownership to a great degree, like the mentor you were mentioning um, who's Scottish, yeah. right? The truest, truest path to prosperity is ownership. Exactly. Right? Yep. And I think that that's been something, like I said, I, I recall I have conversations with my mom all the time. She's retired, but she's curious because she is you know her kids in technology so she's like what's going on out there right and we constantly have these conversations and that's one of the things that she recently said was a big regret of hers she's like you know i didn't realize how much opportunity i had at the time she was a she she was an international project for ernst and young right and she's like the impact that i could have had had I been mentoring and had I been really talking and now she's, you know, she's been out of it for a while now. So she's like, I don't even know if I could even assist anyone anymore, but we got to a really interesting conversation, which may interest you recently about why technology is or how it can be so impactful to the African-American community. And she's like, you know, so I look at like not all African-American households, but mine was my dad died when I was pretty young. She was like, you know, you look at the single mom. And she was like, you know, I had this epiphany that single moms are project managers. And I said, what are you talking about? She's like, I'm serious. She was like, just hear me out. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, you know, what's it, what are the three pillars of project management, Nicole? And I'm like, uh, okay, so you have budget, you have resources, you have time. She's like, exactly. And so in a single household, and which, you know, disproportionately is a lot of African-American households, you have a mom that's trying to manage all of those three things and she's sacrificing one for the other. She either doesn't have enough time to spend with her kids because she's working a lot or she has to bring in more resources, which is another job to balance the other. Or she's got to do all those things to stretch her budget. One of those things has to go or they all have to be balanced. And she's doing that on a day-to-day basis. Right. And I'm like, huh. She was like, so it's just, she was like, so yes, just keep mentoring and make sure you're pushing people in that direction because I don't think that people inherently know that they're naturally doing it anyway. No one ever explained it that way. And I'm like, I actually had never kissed 
considered that before? And she's like, yeah. So when you're out there and you're mentoring, think from that mindset. How can you take people's day-to-day real life scenarios, right? And say, hey, just so you know, the common sense translation to that just happens to be for you, project management or the common sense. Hey, if you know you have a knack for detail and pick those things out in people and then figure out how you could translate that to, you know, our community so that you are articulating that so you can engage people to, you know, come in and say, hey, it may look more intimidating than you think it is. It's not what you think it is. It's you doing the skill sets you've already, you know, using the skills that you already had to produce something that you've already done. And I think that was a pretty interesting insight for my mom. She she still got it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. There is a narrative out there now that I'm I'm not sure. I think it's true, but I I don't have the experience and exposure to it that that, that you would. Mm-hmm. And the narrative is that diverse teams build better products. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? And if so, why do you think that's true? Sure. Um, I do agree with that. I think that, and I'm not just talking about like diversity as in um, race and gender. I'm talking about diversity, period. I'm talking about personality. I'm talking about political beliefs, everything. I think that you draw something out of each other that you hadn't considered. And the biggest point is exactly what I was talking about before, which is consensus, right? Like to some degree, you're going to have a contradiction in what you're building because everyone is pulling in a direction from what from their perspective, right? Development wants to build the most technically complicated thing they humanly can because that's what they're driven to do. Products should be <laughs> should want to build the most user friendly thing they can build, right? So you're you there's tension between you and between development, and well because ego comes into it because mm-hmm. we want to be right, right. And we want to prove our worth and our mm-hmm. value in the equation. Mm-hmm. And so we get in this ego inflation slash protection mode exactly. that doesn't allow us to be sort of as open-minded and vulnerable mm-hmm. as we otherwise should be and probably most of us would want to be. Mm-hmm. But I think what you find in the middle when people finally do realize there's a center, there's a, there, there is a middle ground here. We just have to get to it. Right. Is that... Everyone, to an extent, is right, right? We just need to figure out what parts of your right we're willing to compromise with the parts of our right to make something come to life. And so I think that's where diversity lends itself. I've seen it in all types of product development, even with mobile applications, right? And one of the products that I built out in the UK, for example, had never considered the size of the buttons that we were building in an application for a female user ever, so I'm like, hey, just so you know, like I'm looking at this on a phone and I'm saying that this looks great if you have a larger phone, but I have very small hands because I'm four foot 10 just for some perspective. So I'm kind of scrolling through this app and I'm saying, hey, you might want to consider some of the placement of where you've put these things because that's not how I'm going to use it because my hand is small and I'm not going to carry a phone that large. And your buttons are too big. And they're like, oh, I had never thought about that. And I'm like, right. But think about it now. The colors on how an application presents. I will never forget one time um, we built something. And I think it was like for a Mother's Day campaign or something like that. But it was almost all male team. And I'm like, can I ask you a question? He's like, yeah. This comment is like, who picked these colors just out of curiosity for Mother's Day? And what like, were they like yellow and black? It was awful. Like, I don't even remember. But I was like, who picked these? And they're like... What's wrong with that? And I'm like, I don't know, but I something tells me that that's definitely not a Mother's Day kind of color in the middle of May. It's, <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not Halloween. Correct. I'm like, I don't know who picked this, but you might want to. And they're like, oh, we had never even considered that. And I was like, right. And 
the entire team smell, including design. And I'm like, hey, the design looks good, but the colors don't really fit the occasion. And you should probably consider those things. And I'm like, oh, I never thought about that. And I'm like, right. But that's where that's where diversity, that's how diversity impacts product, right? That's how we create things that are meaningful because we are allowing multiple voices to be heard at the same time. And they're giving us perspective on things that we had never considered before. Um, right. How in how intentional and how obligatory is the responsibility to build diverse teams? Mm-hmm. If you've got a company, many startups deal with this, mm-hmm. right? That they're at the beginning of five or six person team and oftentimes it's all it's all guys, oftentimes it's all white guys. Mm-hmm. At what point, right, does a company need to be intentional about building diversity into their team? Mm-hmm. And you know, we've seen the companies that have that have run into these challenges, right. Uber, et cetera, right? And 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 where it can become cultural not to be diverse, mm-hmm. right? And to have this group think and to everybody be approaching right. problems in the same way. It's, it appears like you need to be intentional. Mm-hmm. Is it obligatory? If a company is five white guys as a startup, mm-hmm. should they be intentional that their next hire is not a white guy? Yes and no. I think when, so this is an interesting response. I think that it needs to lend itself to the experience of the person you're bringing in. If you are, if you have a position that's out there, don't necessarily look for the title of who that person is. Look for the personality that's going to fit. And yes, to an extent, you might want to consider bringing a perspective from someone else as far as being racially diverse or being a female or whatever, because you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> right? And if you don't seek it, you won't know for sure. That can guarantee you that. So... I think that So Duet is pretty interesting. We are diverse, but we aren't just diverse ethnically or racially. We're also very diverse in personality, intentionally so. As a matter of fact, half the time, I promise you, I think when we interview people, it's because they're a complete contradiction to our existing personalities. And we need that person because we need the resistance. Because we believe in a certain amount of tension in an environment. We want there to be diverse opinions. And those opinions may come because it's ethnic or because it's national or because it's political or because it's any of those things, because it's racial, because it's gender, or they may come by way of personality. And that has been a really big strong suit of ours where we are constantly looking for tension in an environment because we are looking to grow. And we can't do that if we all have, like you said, groupthink, or we all think the same, or we all look the same, or we all feel the same about things. Do you at least make it a requirement that they think you're funny and they laugh at your jokes? Like during um, the, the I am funny, interview? though. So uh, just so we're clear, like, I'm hilarious. So I don't care who else's jokes they laugh at. They're going to laugh at my jokes. So just so we're on the same page. And, and if they don't, then they're then it's just an automatic out. No, if they don't, then they obviously have an issue. And they don't have any person. Like, it's, it's something wrong with them. It's not me. So. I, I gotcha. <laughs> uh, so... How would you define what the difference between a good, successful product is and a bad, unsuccessful product? Well, aside from the monetization of a product, if it's not selling, it's probably bad, right? Right. Well, and that's always my answer because because people would when that's we talk about it, people are like, "Oh, well, you know, that's a good product," and I'm like, "A good, successful product sells. has to balance user value and solving mm-hmm. a problem that keep people care about." And what the product owner needs to get out of it 
from a business outcome perspective, yes, or right? Else everyone will be employed and a product won't exist, right? Exactly. <laughs> and you could look at some products, you know, like, um, you know, and that's sort of why the freemium model, mm -hmm. you know, died or has mostly died, right? Because mm -hmm. you could build a product, but if you can't charge for it, if you can't convert enough users from free to pay, mm -hmm. then I would argue that's not a successful product. Correct. Right. Um, that is my benchmark for success. I, everything in my world speaks money because that's the economy that we live in, right? So if it doesn't sell, it's not successful. So everything that we do is based off of what's probably going to sell. Where can the market take us? And a lot of that is market research and understanding our users. And I think that's successful, right? Do we understand our users? Did we you know, build the product that they need, that they want? Are we giving active feedback that's going to improve our product? All those things matter. At the end of the day, it all comes down to the bottom line. Did it sell? How are we, like, where are we? Is Q, you know, it's almost Q3. It's Q3 already, I guess. You know, where are we at? Did we make our goals? So on and so forth. That is the success model that we aim for. And that's just being honest. If it's not that, then I don't know what else it could be. Yeah, um, I agree with you. I appreciate you taking the time to have the conversation. Enjoyed it immensely. This is Ryan Frederick with AWH. And it's been Nicole Doan from Duet Health joining me. Thanks very much. Thank you. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHnet to learn more.